Hello again, this is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs of Atid with another installment in our Jewish Educators Book Club. This month, our very own Dr. Yoel Finkelman speaks to Cheryl Berman about her new book, Reasonable Doubts. I'm sitting with Cheryl Berman, author of Reasonable Doubts, A Religious Skeptic Learns a Thing or Two About God, uh, which was published by Reem uh, just in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I want to speak with Cheryl about uh, this book, which is a little bit of a memoir, a little bit of a book of theology, a little bit of an introduction to philosophy, um, all with a kind of light tone and sense of humor, um, and also a little bit about uh, what implications this book might have for educators, for people who work with young people who are going through religious struggles of their own. Um, I started off by saying that it's not a memoir and not a book of theology. Uh, how do those two fit together? <laughs> okay, that's a good question. Um, when I started writing this book, I really had the intent of writing a book of theology, to write a book of philosophy. I wanted to deal with the struggle to prove the existence of God, and I wanted to deal with the question of human suffering. Um, but when I sat down and thought about it, I also had other goals. I wanted to speak to people who are going through faith crises. And as somebody who has been through a faith crisis, I recognize that there's another aspect to faith crisis that just a, a straight discussion of theology doesn't address, and that is the emotional aspect. Um, I think generally there are basically two types of faith crises, and I could be wrong, there could be more. I think there's an emotional type of faith crisis, which is really... Um, a faith crisis that is instigated by some type of emotional reaction to something that's going on in the person's life. Um, and I recently met with, actually, I was speaking with a Rav about my book, and he told me that when someone approaches him and says, I'm, going, I, I'm having a difficult time believing in God, he doesn't sit there and quote the ontological argument for the existence of God. The first thing he does... It wouldn't be too effective. No, it wouldn't be effective at all. That's the point. The first thing he does is he sits down and he says, tell me what's going on in your life right now. Because very often these, these crises are, are really, you know, I'm not saying there's no intellectual component, but they're really sort of reactions to things that are going on in a person's life. Um, the other type of faith crisis is really an intellectual faith crisis, which is, I think, sort of what I had, um, which um, really involves somebody either studying philosophy, probably usually studying philosophy, um, and then instigating questions that, that they, you know, that they they have when what they're learning sort of contradicts what they've been brought up with. Um, but I think even that intellectual, that intellectual type of faith crisis has a very strong emotional component because when you're going through it, it's a very lonely type of thing, it's a very traumatic type of thing, and it's a very frightening type of thing. So um, I wanted to address the, those emotional aspects of a faith crisis. So that's why I chose to write as a memoir. I thought if I'm taking the theology, but I, 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 I speak about my own story, I'm validating them, I'm empathizing with them, um, I'm giving them a face, to, you know, somebody to, to um, associate with, someone that, um, they, so that they can feel like they're not alone in this, because I think loneliness is a very, very big aspect of faith crises. I think, I don't know about, I, think, I know that when I went through it, I had a very difficult time speaking about it, and I, I didn't speak to my friends about it, I wrote, I wrote that in the book. I didn't even want to speak to professors about it. I, I, was, I was a little bit embarrassed <laughs> growing up in an orthodox world, which I think is, is an aspect of this. Um, so I think in order to sort of fight that or address that loneliness, 
I decided to write this book as a memoir. And you, you kind of get both sides of the coin, meaning, meaning there's a lot of personal information. There's the story of a car accident. You're growing up in a car accident and time in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But there's a way in which, the, and, and then there's the other part, which is kind of summary of Jewish philosophy and summary of general philosophy, particularly about the question of evil. But somehow you also manage to keep the two somewhat separate. Mm-hmm. Meaning, literarily, it's not that there's one sentence about what you were feeling and another sentence about right. the Rambam, right. but there's kind of a couple of pages, a couple of paragraphs about right. the Rambam, and then a couple of paragraphs about experiences in the hospital or experiences right. with friends. Right. Do you see them? How closely intertwined do you see? I, I tried to make it parallel. In other words, I tried very hard to, again, this book was mainly supposed to be a theology book. And the purpose of the book was to, was to bring these philosophers to the, the person who's suffering from a faith crisis in a way that they can understand them. So what I decided to do was take the story of my life um, and help and use that to explain the philosophy. So I would I, I, I'd bring a philosophy, let's say, of Sajah Gaon, and I would talk about Sajah on on suffering and on evil, and then I would bring a story from my life that's sort of what I think, what I hope, explicates and, and also points out the problems with the theory, with Saj's theory. So, so I tried to parallel them. I tried to make it like a seven-layer cake. <laughs> I tried to bring philosophy, memoir, philosophy, memoir, so that the memoir could help explicate the philosophy. I hope, hope I succeeded. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting also because the, the book has a kind of... It deals with very weighty subjects. Right. Evil, Sefer Eov... Uh, suffering, proving the existence of God, skepticism, doubt, uh, pretty heavy subjects. It deals with a range of philosophers that's really quite broad and and is much more sophisticated and nuanced than a lot of what passes for uh, popular or readable Jewish theology these right. days. Um, but it's also remarkably accessible. I kind of have a... Um, I have a personal bias. Normally, I think that when writers and authors end up using a mashal, an analogy, it's often because they don't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> they rather express it loosely in an analogy. And in this case, I don't think that's what's happening. Um, I, I get the impression that the light tone and the analogies at some point you talk about uh, Rambam and the hole in the donut, um, uh, that the analogies are not hiding something that's not precisely worked out, but are trying to reach an audience that's intelligent, but doesn't necessarily have a technical background and isn't interested in um, something highly technical and inaccessible. Right. No, that's exactly what I was doing. I hope I succeeded. That's exactly what I was doing. I I was using stories. I was using analogies, as you were talking about. I was using it all just to bring it Bring it to the, the regular average person because I really feel like Henry Bergson can be a very big help to the, to the, the faith crisis sufferer, but how many people pick up Henry Bergson? <laughs> um, and I really feel like, you know, I, I, I really feel like Rambam can help uh, somebody who's a faith crisis sufferer, but how many people really understand Rambam? And, you know, including myself, really. <laughs> I mean, very few people, even scholars, are, are arguing about what does Rambam mean. And Rambam offers four separate solutions to the problem of suffering. So I really, I, I wanted to explicate each solution. I wanted to point out the problems of each solution. But again, 
I wanted to do it all with a light tone because I didn't want to feel like, I didn't want the faith crisis sufferer to feel like I was lecturing to them. I think that's, I think that really turns people off. You know, when you're picking up a book of philosophy and it's, it's A, it's so heavy you can't understand it. And B, you feel like someone is trying to convince you of something and someone is lecturing to you. I didn't, I didn't want that because I think that turns people off. I think a faith crisis sufferer wants to feel like they're having a dialogue. You know, I feel like, I, I feel like, um, they want to. They want to know that the person who's writing the book. I wanted to put a little bit of my own personality into the book, so that that when when they finish this book, they feel like they know Cheryl and like Cheryl's a friend of theirs. So I'm hoping that the analogies and the stories, again, really really explain the philosophy well, and also introduce them to to me as a person. I, I want to ask something further, a little bit um, about an educational context, right. because the book is accessible. Um, I don't see it as the kind of thing that might be used in a classroom, mm -hmm. but who might, what might an educator get out of reading it, and who might an educator give it to? Uh -huh. Okay, so I think I was thinking about that a lot. Um, I think what an educator can mainly get out of this book. Well, I think there are a few things an educator can get out of this book. I think, firstly, an educator who has never been through a faith crisis, I believe, will have a very difficult time. Um, Relating to somebody who's having a faith crisis, I um I have a friend of mine who is go who's who lost a close relative, and she was going through a very bad faith crisis. And I mean, we spoke about it a lot. But she told me that she went to a rav, and she said to him, "Haven't you ever had like doubts?" And he looked at her and he said, "No." And 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 she first of all she was a little taken aback by it, and she didn't know how to feel about herself when she found that out. Um, and second of all, how is this Rav supposed to address her if, she, if he doesn't have any concept of what she's going through? So I think because it's a memoir, um, I think a teacher who reads it can really get a feel for what, what it feels like to go through a faith crisis. Um, the second thing is, um, I think that most books dealing with faith crises, um, maybe I won't say most, many books dealing with faith crises are essentially reiterations of proofs for the existence of God. I think that you know they they might they might say it in, in prettier ways or you know or in more contemporary language or even fun language, but they're essentially proofs for the existence of God. And I'm not saying those proofs um, don't work on a certain level. Um, I think they can work to persuade. But I think um, listen, you know, I was I was a philosophy major in college. I knew those proofs very very well, and I still had a very bad faith crisis. So I think there has to be. A little bit of a deeper answer, um, a more existential approach um, that I think teachers perhaps are aware of and perhaps aren't aware of. I don't know, um, but I think I think that was one thing that I really focused on in the book. Is is I tried to stay away from those those proofs in the existence of God as much as I can because I know those have been said already, and I'm not trying to, to write a book that everyone else has written. I'm trying to, I'm trying to add a new dimension. So when I talk about Henry Bergson and I talk about Descartes and I talk about Rudolf Otto, I'm trying to lend a certain existential approach. I, want, I, I think that the teacher has to bring God more to the student, not necessarily intellectually, but, but try to talk to the student about connecting to God and about experiencing God. And maybe a teacher can talk to the student about their own experiences of God. Um, or maybe the teacher can suggest ways that a student can try to access that. Which is ultimately where you go, right. meaning ultimately your direction is that uh, that pure reason, to use the Kantian term, is uh, is not going to solve right. is not going to solve people's existential 
problems and is not going to um, is not going to be helpful religiously and personally. And you go much more in an existentialist direction or in a direction where people's experiences and intuitions matter a lot. Right. So somebody's going to look at this from the religious educational perspective and say, why not just skip the first two steps? Why not just skip step one in which you describe yourself as being a teenage medieval rationalist, which is probably <laughs> not the typical... Um, the, probably not the typical teenage behavior, but begin with a teenage medieval rationalist who's convinced that everything can be proven. Um, and then kind of an awareness that uh, Kant and modern philosophy make these things problematic. Right. Why don't you skip the first two? Uh -huh. why, uh, why bother with all of the, with, with stage one and stage two when educators could avoid the problems that are raised by just skipping to step three. The intuitions, the emotions, the mm -hmm. cultural experiences, the family, everything that bring that helped bring you back. Uh -huh. um, right. In other words, why, why did I write chapters like one and two? No, saying, not why you like wrote them. You wrote they... them because they reflect your experience. Right. But the educator is going to say, what let's protect I skip... the kids. What do I need oh. all of this? Oh, okay. What do I need all of this? Right. You know, I, know, I, don't, I, don't believe, I don't think that, that, that an educator should talk about Kant. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I believe that, that the proofs to the existence of God serve a purpose. I think that they can be persuasive. Not as not as philosophical proofs because they're problematic. As philosophical proofs, there's a long history of, of you know, of should I say anti-proofs or disproofs of those proofs. And I remember in college writing a paper on the disproof of the ontological argument for God, and it was shocking for me. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't necessarily think an educator should go there, but I do think that some of these proofs can be used persuasively. You know, I think I think for an educator to say to a person, you know, look out. You know, look look out into nature and see how brilliant, you know, every everything, every tiny particle of nature is. You know, could that possibly be an accident? I'm not talking about going necessarily into the proofs, the eschatological proofs and the theological proofs. I'm not saying that, but just to speak of it as sort of a persuasive type of thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, I think if you're if you're talking about an intellectual faith crisis, I don't think that'll work. I think if you're talking about an emotional faith crisis, that might work. To some extent, mm -hmm. I think if you're talking about an intellectual faith crisis, I think anyone's going to come back, you know, with with either one of the philosophical disproofs, or just by saying, you know, this could be nature, this could be an accident, quoting some scientist. I think there are there are ways to you know to argue against it, which is why I don't necessarily believe this should be the be all and end all of of, of how you approach a faith crisis, which is why I really focused on the existentialist approach because I think I think to get to God, I think I think you need to know two things. I think you know you need to really, really understand that your intellect is limited, which I also went into very deeply into the book. I think the limitations of, of your intellect, especially for an intellectual crisis, is the first step. At least it was for me. I think it's the first step, and I don't just mean knowing it intellectually. I don't just mean you know reading Kant. I mean I mean like really, really understanding and accepting that you are limited, that your intellect is limited, that you can't get there with that part of your brain, that you have to get there somewhere else. And if you want to get back to God, you have to use some other part of your, of your mind to get there. So There's a kind of freewheeling, um, freewheeling style. You're kind of, 
the, the organization of who gets discussed in their basic theories is not so much historical and not the rationalists and the non-rationalists. It's, it's almost an autobiog- autobiography of your own reading list. Right. Um, <laughs> there's something kind of refreshing about that because people don't learn in the real world. People don't right. learn systematically. They learn much more haphazardly right. by what happens to be on the shelf today or what happens to be on, on, on the news tomorrow. Right. Um, but there's also a kind of Torah umada, if you will, um, theme that runs through the whole thing. Meaning um, you're coming from a Jewish perspective and you end up privileging, if you will, <laughs> Rambam and Rav Sajigon and Rav Salvechik. And, uh, but there's also a way in which Spinoza and Kant and Descartes uh, are kind of woven into this whole philosophical discussion and personal discussion is that out of conviction? Is that out of, that's just the way my life happened to work? No, that's absolutely out of conviction. First of all, I, I, you can't learn a lot of these Jewish philosophers without knowing their secular backgrounds. Um, that's first of all. And second of all, I very much believe in Torah Mata. I really believe in, even even if it's Spinoza and he's an atheist, and he's, he's um, a, pantheist. <laughs> a pantheist, right? Um, even if it's someone like Spinoza, I think there's a, there's a kernel of, of if there's a kernel of chachma that you can find in in uh, that, that that can bring you closer to God, so so why not use it? I mean, that's what I believe. Um, I'm a very strong believer in Torah Amada. Um, as far as the free wielding stuff goes, it's interesting that you say that because the medieval section, which I studied academically, is historical. I mean, there was Sajer Rambam Rabag. It was sort of in some historical. <laughs> But um, but then when I got to sort of modern contemporary stuff, I did sort of do a little more free wielding, and I, and you know there, there's no real historical type of feel there, um, and I think that's that because that more reflects experience. I think the medieval stuff in my mind is very academic. I see it very academically, which is ultimately why I left medieval medieval Jewish philosophy because it wasn't good for my soul. <laughs> but I don't I don't think that you know when 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 Jewish philosophy becomes academic, at least for me, it was it was it was a it was a very negative thing. Um, when when that's why someone like Rosalvechik probably speaks to me more than Rambam, which might be a strange thing. But um, it's only strange for somebody who describes herself as, as a, an existentialist as a, as, a, as, a, as a medieval as a teenage medieval rationalist. <laughs> right, exactly. That's my point, though, because to, to me, Rambam is Maimonides, and you know, Rav Salvechik is a Rav Salvechik. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you also spend a lot of time. Really, you deal, as you said, with two central issues, the proofs for the existence of God or, or conviction, sources of conviction for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the second issue that you spend a lot of time on is suffering. And particularly, you model things around Eov, and you do something a little bit literarily and theologically gutsy, which is you kind of mm-hmm. fictionalize the, mm-hmm. the, the writing um, of Sefer Eov. Mm-hmm. Uh, also there, is that because... Those are the central question, theological questions. Is that accidental? These were the central questions in Cheryl Berman's development, right. um, or is that because this is volume one and volume two will deal with, <laughs> uh, you know, will deal with the other great right. religious questions? <laughs> no, I think um, it's both. I think it's it's a. It was it was for me in my life that was that was the central question that ultimately led me back to God. Um, ironically, perhaps, um, but also I think that is—I don't know if it's the major issue, but it's definitely one of the major issues that lead to faith crises. You know, people, people, 
suffering themselves or seeing others suffer, either relatives or, or perhaps children. And, and that type of thing, I think, is really sort of prime <laughs> for prime sort of prime uh, material for a faith crisis. That's why I talked. But I really, I really talked about it because that was what, what I experienced. Um, but I, I do believe, reflecting on it, I do believe that that is sort of really prime material for a, for a faith crisis. You know, people that I know who have gone through faith crises, many of them have 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 been. It's it's been incited by some type of suffering. Mm, what 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 about this? choice to kind of fictionalize right. in a couple of places you talk about yeah. Elihu sitting down to write right. Sefer Eo so really what's did going that. through his mind I really did that because I, I, I first of all I just enjoyed it very much <laughs> but also I did it because um, I wanted to bring an artistic element to the book, I didn't want this book to sound like a philosophy book, I really didn't want this book to sound like a philosophy book, I wanted this book to be an enjoyable thing to read I wanted this book to be the kind of book that somebody can't put down. You know, philosophy books generally can be put down. <laughs> but um, I, I wanted this book to be like, you know, and, and also I found that the, the Eve story really paralleled very nicely the different sections, the philosophy and the, um, and the memoir. I found that the Eve sections really paralleled them nicely. It, just, it all fit in just very well. That's why I really went with it. Okay. You think that, uh, what, do you, what do you make of that in terms of the... In terms of the reticence to kind of uh, reinvent the authorship <laughs> of Tanah, I don't mean. To, uh, well, I didn't, I didn't just totally take it from nowhere. <laughs> there is an opinion that he, that Elihu wrote Sefer Eov. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went to the Dat Mikra and I read through the introduction of Sefer Eov, and I was I was looking to find you know looking for the different. I, I was trying to find the character to go into my book to write it. And when I saw Elihu, somehow I just knew that was it. <laughs> um, so I, mean, I didn't it also, just take it out of nowhere. <laughs> it gives it a certain kind of... Uh, the layers parallel each other. Because right. what you're suggesting is, um, Lahavdil, that uh, Elihu wrote, or according to one opinion, wrote Sefer Eov because, because of this combination of theological concerns with his own life experience. Right. And he describes Eov as somebody for whom theological concerns are tied up with life experience. Right. And you write a book right. in which theological concerns are right. tied up with life experience. Right. And it all kind of, right. it brings the whole thing together right. in which part of what you're saying is despite this critical distance that the, that the philosophical enterprise requires, that there's a way in which... Um, that there's a way in which you really can't separate the person and their existential condition and their biography from right. from the conclusions that they draw and the right. arguments that they make. No, absolutely. At least for me, absolutely. First of all, faith crisis is a life experience. There's no way you can you can divorce your faith crisis from 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 your life, even if it's not an, an emotionally instigated faith crisis. Even if it's an intellectual, it becomes your life. Believe me, this is like. 24 hours a day, this is all you think about. And you don't sleep and you stop eating. I mean, this is really all, all you think about. This becomes your life. So, so it's, it's um, that, I hope I reflected that in the book. Um, and uh, I don't know, was there another question? Or... Well, okay, let me try to, I guess, I want to summarize with just my own thoughts. Um, and, uh, and then we'll wrap things up. Um, the... Um, I, I would love to have the opportunity to give this book to my students. 
um, precisely because uh, many of them are religiously serious people without vast background in philosophy, right. and and they will come out of it potentially both with a much more intellectually grounded and sophisticated sense of what right. the big books, the big fat books have to say, <laughs> and also a sense of why it matters, not only abstractly, but at least right. in somebody's life. Right. So at least my recommendation, I give it a, you know, give it a strong recommendation, is the kind of thing that can be passed on to intelligent, bright, teenagers, young adults, and also older uh, people with these kinds of interests. Right. Um, so thank you, Cheryl, for your time. Thank you. And good luck, uh, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity.